Good afternoon, everybody. So Richard and I have been having this conversation in private for about the last 18 months. And so this is our first uh, public test run uh, to see how it goes uh, in public. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your questions and comments uh, about this, this topic. So, so the issue here is how do we prepare American students better to live in a global society? And I think that uh, part of the challenge that we have in in having this conversation is that we actually don't have very good data about how well prepared students are, comprehensively anyway, to, um, uh, to live and work in a global society. But we do have some anecdotal evidence from various places, and the picture that's painted is not a very good one. So let me just mention a couple of data points for you to illustrate this, and then we'll get into the conversation. Um, I think what we're trying to focus on here is global knowledge, global proficiency, global awareness, global literacy, whatever you want to call it, uh, and trying to figure out how we can actually get it to a higher level. And I think the evidence that I'll point to here shows that we are at a fairly low point uh, right now in our history. Two, two examples to illustrate that. The first is a 2012 study of high school graduates uh, that showed that... Um, the majority, so more than 50%, don't know where Afghanistan is. They don't know that Mandarin is the most common global language. In fact, 70% of the students said that uh, English is the most common global language. Uh, or that David Cameron is the British Prime Minister. Uh, a separate study, a completely different study, of college students done uh, by a different group in that same year, 2012. And this is a somewhat different study because it's not just about global knowledge. This study is also about... Uh, awareness of history, uh, the arts, culture, some other things. And this is actually a survey that was originally done in 1980 and then replicated in 2012. And in this study of college students, 30% thought that Baghdad was the capital of Afghanistan. 12% thought that Mount Everest was in the Appalachians. Uh, and um, the percentage, so in this study, they did the comparison between 1980 and 2012. In 1980, they rank ordered the percentage of students that got the questions right. So there's actually 300 questions on this survey. Number six on the list for getting it right in 1980 was, what's the capital of France? In 2012, that answer had fallen to number 26. Uh, in, in the ranking. These are uh, uh, enrolled uh, college students. Now, in the midst of that bad news, there is some good news, which is that the students who are being surveyed are saying that they want to know a lot more about the world. In that first survey that I mentioned, 80% said that they were curious about world events, and three-quarters of these recent high school, high school graduates said that they wish they had actually gotten uh, um, a curriculum in high school that had taken a more global approach. So this conversation about global literacy, global awareness, I think is set in a, a broader context, if you will, about the challenges that we are seeing in our educational system, both in K-12 and higher ed, about uh, proficiency and competency that we're seeing of the people who are graduating from our learning institutions. Uh, this applies both to K-12 and higher education. And I think what we want to talk about today is, is the two elements of what, uh, what constitute uh, that, that, that uh, knowledge. The first is content knowledge, right? You should know something about, about subject matter. You should have some expertise in, in subject matter. And the second is that you should have generalizable skills. 
You should be a critical thinker. You should be able to solve problems. You should be able to communicate. Uh, these are things that make you uh, an effective participant in the, in the workforce and an effective participant in our democracy. Ultimately, what a high school uh, diploma represents and what a, what a college degree means in terms of skills, knowledge, and abilities is perhaps the most pressing issue that I think is facing our educational system today. So let's start with the first question, Richard, which is, so do we really have a problem with global literacy? And if so, what, what is it? What's the problem? Well, Jamie, we do have a problem. And when we use the phrase global literacy, we're not talking about reading skill levels around the world. We're talking about whether Americans are literate about the world. Uh, one way to think about it, can people hear me, by the way? Uh, one way to think about it is that if you're basically in high school or soon to be in college, your life is going to be a 21st century life, given the actuarial tables. Right now, the United States is about 4% plus or minus of the world's population, or 23% or so of a world economic output. But that percentage, particularly economically, will, will come down. And so the world is going to matter uh, a great deal to anyone who is, is coming of age. It's going to matter economically. Uh, more and more jobs are going to, one way or another, be uh, influenced about our access to markets elsewhere, about the access of other goods to, and services to the United States. Uh, it's going to matter. I mean, look at the current story going on about uh, Syria and Iraq. You're going to have this whole generation of jihadists who are going to have American and European passports and able to come here. And so we're going to see that the, if you will, borders count for uh, borders count for uh, uh, less as citizens. That's not great. Can we uh, should we use the microphone or what? And then uh, much better. As citizens, we're going to be asked to cast judgment about, upon policies and politicians. Uh, so it matters in in all sorts of. Uh, Ways. There's also a slightly more narrow, but I think still critical issue, which is we need Americans to serve in our government, in the armed forces, intelligence. Uh, we need Americans in the, in the foreign service. We need people who are able economically to, in the business world to operate abroad. We need journalists, whatever. We, we, we need a coterie of Americans who are comfortable operating in the, uh, in the world. So I think the, the case for expanding global understanding of tooling Americans up so they can fulfill their obligations as citizens and be economically uh, competitive, I think the, the case is, is pretty strong for that. So what's your, what's your definition, then, of global literacy? What's, what's your view of what that really entails? What should it, what should it mean? Uh, well, I think you got at it in your, your opening remarks. It means a, an appreciation of, first of all, the basic forces, the, the layout, almost how the table is set in the world, say globalization or, or some understanding of demography or some understanding of this or that country or region. I think a, a base, a little bit of a geographic uh, awareness on top of the demographics, so some basic sense of uh, how the world looks, almost a snapshot. And then I would say an appreciation for the forces that shape the world. And one way to think about it, and I always go back to my favorite professor and uh, author, is a guy named Headley Bull, who was an Australian, and wrote 20, 30 years ago, and the idea that at any point in the world you've got 
forces that make the world work and forces that tear it apart. And to have an appreciation of what these, of what these forces uh, are. So to, just to have an, a handle, if you will, on the world. I think that for Americans, they should know some basics about American foreign policy, about some notion of American interests, ways in which the United States affects the world, ways in which the United States is affected by the world, maybe a little bit of civics about how American foreign policy is, uh, is then made. I, th I would say that those are the, the basics of, of, of being globally knowledgeable or having a, a minimal or foundational level of, of global awareness. So why, why is Richard Haas interested in this? You're the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, do, do you want to uh, seed the future of foreign policy uh, core? Or what, what, what are you really trying to get at here? A couple of reasons. One is um, when my organization was founded nearly a century ago, one of the reasons that led to it, indeed the, pr the principal impetus, was uh, people were worried that after World War I, the United States was going to slip into isolation, as in fact many, uh, many Americans did. I'm quite worried that that's happening again now. The polls are overwhelming that uh, Americans, for whatever set of reasons, whether it's intervention fatigue, concern about the economy, what have you, are turning inward and don't see or don't appreciate the basics about why the world matters and how what it is we do, therefore, uh, matters uh, as well. So I am genuinely uh, worried about that. Second of all, We've done a lot of research on this. You can go to the best universities in this country. Actually, I'll tell the story how it happened. It was a few years ago, and I was fishing. Actually, where's David sitting? Uh, we were fishing off of another one of America's uh, emblematic places, just like Aspen. I think it was Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard. And we were with a young man who was uh, a junior or senior at Stanford, and he was a computer sciences major. And I said, that's interesting. Uh, so I'm just curious, when you, when you graduate, when you major in computer stuff at Stanford, how many economics courses have you had? And he said, none. And then I said, oh, that's interesting. Well, how many politics courses have you had to take? And he said, none. And how many history courses? You get the sense of the riff, none. And then, so I was intrigued that you could go to school as great as Stanford. And even while all these things were offered on the campus, it wasn't required in order to get a, a bachelor's degree. And then we looked at about 150 or 200 of America's leading colleges and universities, and it turns out that's exactly the case, that virtually every campus in America has offerings that if the student took them, he or she would have under their collective belts a basic understanding of the world and what we're talking about here, but virtually no university requires it. Uh, the core courses aren't available, simply aren't offered, or if there's distribution requirements, they are so broad and so diluted that you could take one course in Indonesian music and dance, and that would fulfill your, your requirement for, for global studies appreciation, which is a distribution requirement that essentially isn't a requirement in any meaningful sense of the world. So we came to the conclusion, where I am at the Council on Foreign Relations, that there's a pressing case for individuals to learn about the world. There's a pressing case for this society to learn about the world. And the principal mechanism we have in our country where we ensure that Americans are exposed to something common is through schools. Uh, that's where we do it. We do it in high schools and we do it uh, in colleges. And it just simply wasn't, it wasn't happening. And so our view is uh, then how do, we, how do we make it happen? 
And what Jamie's foundation does, what Lumina does, is look very much at what, are the, what should be the requirements, what should a, a, a bachelor's degree represent. So if you're an employer and you're hiring this or that person, you can have confidence in knowing that they know at least this. And if you're a parent or if you're a student, that you should know if you go to this or that school, you're going to graduate at least with this. This will be part of your, your basic foundation. And obviously then on top of that, there's, there's the potential for specialization, whether you want to be an expert in, in music or, or, or math or, or computers or biology, that's up to you. But regardless, that everybody, because as a citizen and as someone who's going to be living in this 21st century, that they will have this, this basic uh, knowledge set and skill set, some of which deals with the world per se, and some of which is quite honestly a liberal arts education. The ability to think critically, to write and speak uh, effectively and clearly, to, to work in teams, not just individually, but to learn how to, how to collaborate. Well, this is something that we want any graduate of, of high school and that at a higher level of, of college and university to have. I'm going to hire Richard to be my spokesperson from now on. So it, you, you mentioned the 150 to 200 schools that you looked at. So if this is a problem among the elite, which are educating maybe... 10 to 15% of the total student population in the United States. This is obviously going to be a problem for the rest, correct? So uh, how do we do this then? How do we actually move from, okay, we acknowledge we've got a problem to what we're going to do about it? Well, when I taught at the Kennedy School, and Philip Zellico is here, he also has this experience, you learn that 90% of life is implementation. So figuring out what the problem is and even designing a so-called answer to it is the less difficult part. The question then is, is getting buy-in. So I think, first of all, there's got to be demand for it. And uh, So what I'm hoping is that parents, uh, boards you know, of trustees, others who are administrators and so forth, will begin to say this is important. I'm actually hoping that some schools say, hey, we're going to do this, and this is a reason to come here. This becomes one of the ways we define ourselves. And this actually becomes a, a comparative advantage in the educational uh, marketplace. Uh, I think faculty could be the toughest nut to crack. And we're going to have to think about how to incentivize faculty uh, in order to, to do this. Since in many schools, faculty want to uh, specialize and so forth. And particularly reaching tenured faculty uh, can be a bridge uh, too far. So I think you've, we've got to look at that side of implementation. And the other side of implementation is how do you physically package material? Once, it is, once you decide what the content is, well, how do you, how do you get it? And what, for example, we're doing at the Council on Foreign Relations is developing online simulations. We're going to be, we're, we're going to be producing a whole set of essentially mini MOOCs uh, on this. We'll do teacher training. Essentially, we'll, we'll attack it from any number of uh, directions. But what I'm hoping is in a number of, number of years, we have enough campuses doing this that there, there's then a demonstration effect. And that people say, wow, these kids are learning these things. And by the way, it's helping these schools. One of the ways it'll help the schools is when their graduates who have this do better in getting jobs. Because that'll be a powerful market signal. And, I, and part of this comes from speaking to hundreds of corporations and the representatives is they want this. If you look at American corporations, increasingly the biggest area of growth for their business is overseas. Again, that's where 96% of the people tend to live, so it's not surprising. They need, they need employees who get the world. 
So they need employees who are comfortable working in the world and who have the basic liberal arts uh, tool set. What this then, it seems to me, it gives people then who graduate from these institutions, it gives them a leg up, a leg up in, the, uh, in the marketplace. And I think once that is widely perceived, this will begin to sell itself. So I'm going to take your questions in a minute here. A couple more things I want to get on the table here with Richard. One of them is, you know, I think, so we've got the Council on Foreign Relations expertise, the leverage, the brand uh, that can be applied to help not only shine the spotlight on this, but also help develop the solutions. And the question is, so is this solely the responsibility of the college and universities? Are, are, are they the ones that have failed? Has public policy failed? Are there other failures in the system that, that we should be addressing here? Well, it's, it's a big question. It's an interesting uh, question. But uh, look, you're having, you're having something of a debate, to say the least, about the core, <laughs> whether there should be one and what should it consist of. So I think we're, it's the, the good news is the issue's out there. The bad news is it's not always being terribly well uh, dealt with. And, just, and so we're having, though, a fairly intense public debate about what ought in particular to be in the elementary school and high school uh, core. And because state funding and all that is much more central to that, I think there's greater ability of governments to, to deal with it. But yeah, I, I don't think we're doing a terribly good job and indeed and there's also been a little bit of unanticipated consequences which is when you insist on some things being put in the core if you don't add resources other things get squeezed out and ironic is not just art and music and phys ed that gets squeezed out one of the things that's gotten squeezed out is civics so we've, we've got to be mindful I think of when we build a, a core for, for universities and you know this world better than I do colleges and universities the private side is far more significant right. Right. and I think here then uh, I actually prefer the market approach or what individuals want you know, as parents, uh, again, what's, how schools define themselves, and then market signals. I also like one idea we're playing with is also that individuals who would gain certain skill sets through what we offer, and then you have, they get badged. And this is something that they could then go into the marketplace and say, I've, I've taken these things. I now have this skill set. Hire me. And again, so it's a way you could both accredit or acknowledge what institutions do, but there's also a way you could acknowledge what individuals do. And again, my, my, ex, my prediction is, somewhere between a hope and a prediction, uh, is that, that if this kicks in and works, that again, it will, it will create a momentum of its own because it, it will, there's a, a powerful incentive to hire and, uh, people. So Richard, I mentioned at the outset that uh, one of the challenges we have here is I, I think instinctively we know we've got a problem, but frankly, comprehensive data is hard to come by here. And the few anecdotes I threw out, threw out are really just that. They're things drawn from surveys to try to illustrate, illustrate some very specific points. So on the back end of this, what kind of metrics should we be using to actually demonstrate that we've got a higher level of global literacy, a higher level of awareness of proficiency uh, when it comes to these, these issues? Well, we'll have to test for it. At the end of the day, uh, we'll have to come up with some kind of standardized uh, testing. We're going to have to uh, measure it. Uh, it's somewhat expensive to do that, but it will, it will all the same be necessary. If you're going to certify individuals, you're going to certify institutions, because then it's going to, people have to have confidence in the statistics. So we'll, we'll have to uh, test for it the way we test for any other, uh, any other competence. And uh, so I just think that's going to have to be built into any effort in this country to essentially make the case that uh, this is more important. Uh, 
Uh, and then once you've, once you've made the case, it's more important, then you've got to show that you're actually delivering the goods. I welcome your comments and questions. We've got a, a, a wireless microphone somewhere, so can Gentleman there come the over this way, please. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, right, right there, the striped shirt. Thank you. You got one, two. Th Mr. Spiro also okay, has a question. Thank Thanks. Hello. Thanks very much for starting the conversation. Um, so I recently completed a doctorate in a small European language, and my question for you is: thinking back on that process at a state university, was the explicit infrastructure and the implicit infrastructure that makes that type of work possible? So when we think about explicit infrastructure, we think about two programs: the foreign language area study, the FLAS grants, yeah. as well as the Fulbright scholarships, which have helped a lot me, myself, and a lot of my colleagues go through grad school. The implicit infrastructure that supports that is a now disappearing mandate to take at least a year or two of foreign languages at the undergraduate level, which are taught by graduate students such as myself as a way of paying for our education. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, those two forms of infrastructure? Richard's got a strong view on this topic. This has come up in our conversations. Yeah, so, so I'm going to lose half the people in the room at this point. The half I probably haven't lost up to now, uh, I'm going to learn, which is the following. I do not think universities are the best place to teach foreign languages. And I have a one is to use a basic economics concept of opportunity cost. If you spend 10 or 20% of your time in university studying Mandarin, that time isn't going to be available to study other things, history, economics, writing. And I think universities are uniquely qualified to teach things like history and writing and all that, and they're not necessarily uniquely qualified to teach language. So it seems to me a bad use of university uh, times. Don't get me wrong, I am not against Americans learning foreign languages. The, the real question is when is it best to do that? I would like to see it pushed down much earlier into the American education system, into elementary schools. Uh, I would think there the comparative advantage uh, is great, in part because of the receptivity of, of brains and you know, demonstrated ability to learn languages is greater when people are are younger, the opportunity cost intellectually isn't uh, nearly as high. I also think there's other opportunities to learn languages, uh, summer institutes, years abroad, gap years. I just don't think by and large university classrooms, particularly for the more demanding languages, uh, is, a, is, a, is a particularly good uh, way, way, way to go. But I, I realize that's a, a minority or, or certainly a controversial uh, point. Although you would see universities still having a role in sort of advanced language, maybe. If, in other words, if we got to it at an earlier point, then Absolutely. you could deal with the higher levels of proficiency, no. et cetera, as opposed to starting Mandarin when you're a freshman I just hate the idea that somebody goes to one of our country's great colleges and universities, and they have to spend a, at least a quarter of their classroom time in their four years studying, say, Mandarin or Arabic and all that. At the end of it, they're still not fluent. And they just, they've lost out on all that classroom time when they couldn't do And they, if they had spent the time younger doing it, they would have been far more advanced without the, the lost time that would have been available to other subjects. Let's go to the back row there next, please. Went to blue and Thank white you. stripes here today. Yes. Then we'll go to you, Don. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll get Philip so, Zellico uh, here. Okay. I would, I would follow on comment on your comment on, on when, you, when you learn foreign languages. So I'm from Sweden, and I've lived in the States for about 20 years. I think your, your biggest disadvantage in the U.S. is that you don't, you're not forced to learn a foreign language. Kids are not curious about learning a foreign language. 
at a young age because you don't, you're not exposed at all. There's no television in a foreign language. You don't cross a border next door that is a foreign language. No. Um, so I don't know how you develop that curiosity, but certainly the mandate, at least learning a foreign language in school, would lead to some more curiosity for kids. One idea is to mandate it. Another idea we're playing with is, again, market signals. Just say colleges, let it be known, that they would place a preference on admissions to young people who had language skills. I would bet you in a New York minute, as those of us who live in New York would say, that a, virtually every school that felt it was in a competitive situation would increase its emphasis on language preparation. So market signals will work there, even without necessarily the state saying, you've got to, uh, you've got to do it. So very quickly, I think we could get a major increase in language education at an early age. Let's come, come here to Don first, and we'll go to Phil next. like an obstacle course. Just shout. Uh, I agree. Is this on? We're working. Um, I agree with your observations about the necessity of creating awareness um, at um, K-12 and post-secondary levels. But my question is, isn't that just the platform for actually taking a global literacy to the next level? Number one, don't Americans need to have literacy about the U.S. as a basis for understanding global literacy? And secondly, how can you get there after <clears throat> some classroom studies without actually going okay. there? Okay. And, and, of course, now there's the possibility of doing that virtually as well as actually. But could you comment? Two good on questions. That? The first is um, the question, it's really civics. And Sandra Day O'Connor has done some powerful work in this, as of others. When I used to teach at the Kennedy School, one of the depressing things, one of the many depressing things, was that the non-American students knew the Federalist Papers and the Constitution better than most of the American students. We don't do a very good job at teaching our own uh, civics, our own history. One of the great, many great things that David Rubenstein is doing is using philanthropy to preserve America's heritage. And so, yeah, and part of this curriculum, when I talk about how American foreign policy is made, you would have to then learn a little bit about some of the institutions. You go back to the Constitution, separation of powers. It's a backdoor into, uh, into uh, civics, uh, 100%. The idea of going overseas, we're struggling with that, and here's why. When we speak to a lot of uh, high, people in higher education, there's a, a bit of an economic problem here. A lot of the young people who are best positioned to go overseas, gap years, junior years abroad, summers, are people who are higher up the economic, uh, in, in terms of income levels, and they don't have to work or do other things. So you don't want to set up a system where your wealthier kids get all the time to go, and, 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 and your kids on scholarship uh, can't, or for other reasons can't leave campus. They've got jobs, they've got sports, whatever. So. We're trying to, maybe there's short things you could put in, different types of targeted scholarship funds. Another idea we've, we've recently been exposed to is certain universities have made a systematic effort to take, particularly those in urban areas, to take advantage of the wealth of cultural diversity in their urban area. And the nickname for it I've come up with is abroad at home. So if you live in a major city, 
Why can't you go to the various parts of town where people speak you know, our immigrant communities, different religions, and so forth, and meet with people who come from around the world and at least have a degree of exposure? Why can't you set things up on campus? Virtually every campus in America now has a large and growing number of non-American students. Why can't students become something of a more structured resource for other students? Anyway, I think there's ways of doing this. because I'm not fighting your point. I just think implementing it so every American undergraduate goes overseas ain't going to happen. So what I'm thinking of are ways to begin to do things on campuses to get at exactly what you're saying. Yeah, just to uh, <clears throat> add to your point and maybe to uh, also add to our collective depression over this topic. So the, the, uh, this survey of college students that I mentioned, the 2012 survey, also was looking at, at uh, other issues, history, culture, the arts, et cetera. Uh, you will not be surprised to know that the college students in 2012 scored highest on pop culture and arts, uh, and they actually scored worse on global knowledge and history. And in fact, of the this was a nationally representative survey of about 700 college students, 300 questions on the survey, and it was 15 or 18 of the questions, not a single student got a question right. So 15 or 18 of these questions, which many of them they had asked in 1980, there was not one correct answer. Let me just reassure you, by the way, there will not be a quiz at the end of this lunch. <laughs> I just wanted to put everybody at ease here. Cause I... Yeah, my favorite, my favorite one was uh, the, um, who was the most famous photographer in the Civil War, uh, which I knew the answer to, Matthew Brady. Matthew right? Brady everybody yeah. knows that. Yeah, no, not a single college student knew the answer to that. That's pretty question. esoteric. Phil? Yeah. Uh, Richard, I'd be grateful if you could elaborate a little more on your proposal. I think I understood that you were thinking of trying to help sponsor the development of courses and a curriculum that could backfill or supplement the offerings that some colleges had to help give them offerings that could plug some of their gaps. And so you'd need then to form partnerships to get your courses plugged into their system. And then I guess I wasn't as clear on whether or not you're also trying to design some way the students credentialize that, yep. uh, whether they get a, a merit badge or some other way Very that they then question. get the uh, market benefit from proving that they've had this knowledge. Right. Seems to me there's two ways to go on campus with institutions. Uh, one is to help universities who aren't in a position to do it to, to make available certain offerings. And there's no one or right way. You could do a course. You could do multiple courses. You could do it supplementary materials that teachers can plug into courses, simulations, video. There's lots of different ways you can do it. Uh, another issue, another way to do it, though, on, a many, on many campuses, the stuff is already offered. It's just not required. So it's not so much a capa building capacity issue. It's a, it's a governance issue for the university. So it's in, to encourage universities to tighten distribution requirements and to, to beef them up a little bit. There may also have to then be, if, if enough students are required to do things, you may have to also increase capacity. I understand that. But it's, it turns out on many schools it's as much a governance issue or, or kind of a self-definition issue. Because uh, it turns out every university, whether they're aware of it or not, makes a, a conscious or unconscious decision as to what their degree represents. And it's interesting, just as an aside, how many schools don't have a really detailed conversation about it. But very few of our schools in America have a core curricula. Most, however, have distribution requirements, but uh, it's pretty thin. Or to be, I guess, 
And, uh, so you could say it's very flexible, and uh, individuals have tremendous discretion and choice. But the downside of discretion and choice is that it's very easy to get a degree where you haven't been exposed to certain concepts, skill sets, and whatever. And you just got to decide whether that's a desirable or uh, acceptable si situation. And Philip, the second half of your thing, I'm sorry. Credentialize. Oh, yeah. Yeah, why not? Well, you could do it, like, and you could, you could, one is you, cre you credentialize or acknowledge institutions. Individuals, then you could also have a thing through the, some sort of badging where you would, sh you would have, say, a global literacy achievement thing, and there'd be a way of testing for it to certify it. But that's what we would, we would build in. And that way, it also wouldn't be limited then necessarily to people and institutions. If you think about lifelong learning, one of my goals is to come up with an approach, uh, just as 30-second aside, I think we've got a real problem in America that we think of education as something you do to people basically, by the, and it kind of runs out by the time they're in their early 20s. Well, they're going to then have, given demographics, 50 years in the workforce. It is inconceivable to me that more than a negligible, negligible percentage of those people are going to be able to survive, much less thrive, in those 50 years without getting their tank, if you will, topped off. So this could be a form of, of intellectual topping off, where you wouldn't have to be part of an institution, but it would be available online and other ways. And then, but again, you'd have to then have some certification mechanism. But I think your point about the, the issue of certification is really important here, because I think one of the uh, things that Richard mentioned earlier that I think is important is building the demand for this. And one of the ways you want to try to do this is to, is to elevate it in some way in terms of what the students get out of it. So the question is, should it be a, a requirement for all degrees? Should there be a badge? Should there be some sort of certi certificate of proficiency? What is it so that you can elevate it and, and, and emphasize that this person, you know, she's actually got that, that knowledge, skill, and ability in order to be able to, uh, to do that? If I could just pursue this with a brief follow-up. So, uh, so you should say what you do at the University of Virginia. Yep. Um, well, we've actually just uh, this year have adopted a global studies undergraduate degree program interdisciplinary for the first time in the history of the university, which Jeff Legros and I um, uh, spearheaded. But I want to go back to your, I want basically build on your idea. So if instead of working the courses as hard, you actually worked on developing a global literacy assessment. Then you did it in partnership with, yeah. say, three or four key employers. Yeah. And the three or four key employers said, if you want to apply for certain jobs in which we'll be working globally, it'll be a plus for your application if you have taken and done well on yeah. this global literacy assessment. Okay. Then, uh, um, and by the way, that is independent of a college degree. So it rewards lifelong learning at any stage if you can prepare yourself to do this. Yep. Then all sorts of interesting things happen along the lines you were discussing a few yep. minutes ago. And I don't see them in any way as mutually exclusive. I, you know, I could see it happening lots of different ways, but it's a good point. Okay, we're going to keep going around this way. Go ahead. A couple of points of clarity. In Colorado, civics is required, so not all states have given it up. Secondly, um, it seems to me you're discussing what we're delivering to the doors of the university as our our particular problem, and why wouldn't your emphasis really go to um, what the woman from Sweden addressed, and that is get curiosity, adaptability, flexibility, and resilience down at the lower levels. 
I work in a K-12 system yeah. here in Aspen. And one of the things we find is kids are curious. They come to our doors curious. Fifth graders who stand, you ask them, 96% say, I want to go to college in the fifth grade. By the 11th grade, it's 38% want to go. That's not locally, but that's nationally. So the point is, how do we kill the dream and that curiosity? Yep. And so wouldn't your movement be better served to get it back into, um, and not the doors of the university, but down below? Let me explain why really not. Where can affect change. Uh, in principle, yes. In practice, no. This actually goes back to the Kennedy School model. Intellectually, you're exactly right, but you, it's much more difficult to implement at the elementary and high school level, given the way that we, we govern schools in this country, given the role of state legislatures, boards of regents, given the way you know, look at the debates about the Common Core. It turns out that the higher education system is a more permeable uh, landscape. So whatever you can, it's not, and it's not either or, whatever you could get done at, your, at the elementary level or high school level, I would love to get done. It's just uh, the, the difficulty of implementation is just that, it's, it's an order of magnitude greater. And look at the debates about the cores. And even when I've gone to educators who are sympathetic to me, they said, but get the hell out of our office because we can't add another requirement. We're already, we've maxed out on the battles with local authorities over math and reading and writing and other stuff. If you add your stuff, as valuable as it is, it's going to overload the circuits. No can do. So they said, we like what you're saying. We just, um, just come back another day. So we came to the conclusion that the chance for getting a lot of this to happen was the odds were just, the, the receptivity was much greater at the college and university level. So can we go to the lady in the scarf next, right here? You had a question, yes? Or no, or this gentleman here. I'm sorry. Um, have you have you thought about it in terms of, in terms of uh, what you're trying to do? Have you thought about uh, the idea of accessing the family? It's so easy for us to blame schools and things like that. Have you thought about the idea of accessing the family first? And then secondly, this morning we were involved with a panel that talked about BuzzFeed. Uh, um, all the internet things. Have you thought about how you might access those uh, media in order to uh, uh, make sure that uh, your uh, ideas are promulgated? Yep. Yeah, you're right about the family on one level, and you know, and if you were unlucky to be one of my two kids, <laughs> then you grew up around a dinner table where this was this was the staple. For better or for worse, that's, that, that's probably abnormal. And the problem in leaving things up to families is the, just the range. And so it's why, again, I am towards the heavy end of where institutions offer things. And hopefully you get family reinforcement. I just don't think you can bank a, a movement on that. It's in too many other, you know. But, but it's, a, it's a really big question because the question is, can you, can you do it only through formalized learning contexts, or are there other ways in which you can get to it? And obviously, the answer is you have to, because if there's one thing we know about this uh, demographic of the population, the, the under-25 population, is that their learning styles are quite different than yours and mine, right? So they're much more collaborative learners. 
They learn much more by uh, working with each other, uh, you know, uh, things within their family, use of technology. All those things are, are quite different. There's very clear evidence of that. So how they learn goes well beyond the formalized learning context, and that's something we've got to take into account in this. But we've got to start somewhere, and we've got to start, I think, in the, in the formalized learning and, context. And the use of social media. And, yep. and our, so we're looking really hard at how young people learn. And you look at you know, everything from the length of videos. Yeah. What's the attention span? What, what's the, you know, is it eight minutes as opposed to, yeah, but one of the reasons, for example, the whole MOOC movement hasn't done so well is these 45-minute kind of take it, you know, people sign up for them, and then the, the dropout rate is enormous. So you've obviously got to come up with different kinds of packages. People also don't just want to be on receive. They want to be involved. That's where simulations and interactive things become important. But we're, we're, we're it's the same, I think we're going through the same conversations that every other person in the educational reform movement is going through, trying to figure out what works. All right, let's try to get to a couple more questions. We've got one right here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you did have one. I thought you had one earlier. Thank you. Um, you have such an important message, and you've gathered so much important information. Um, and you have noted rightly about the problem being implementation, and you talked about marketing. Where are you in this effort? How much have you reached out to others? Have you convened experts? Uh, you know, what has been your process of implementation with these important, very, very important, crucial ideas that you have? Well, or thank you. Not only ideas, but information. Yeah, we're actually early on. This is the first public event we've done. And what, what we've been doing is focusing on the content, developing that, talking a lot to teachers at the high school and college level, talking to educators, looking at what's going on in educational reform, uh, refining the approaches about how we incentivize individual institutions. So we've done a lot of the prep work. And what I'm hoping happens, or what will happen over the next year, is, is essentially we'll take this public. And, and we'll find different, like anyone else who's got a cause, we will find ways to get it, uh, to get it out there. But, but you know, but we are, we're piloting this year for the first time, actually this summer, we're actually now piloting the first set of educational materials. Uh, it's called Model Diplomacy to get uh, high school and college kids in, in settings that teach them both the, the content as well as the, the various learning skills of speaking, reading, writing, uh, collaborating, and so forth. So but you will start hearing about this, I would expect, uh, when people go back to school this fall. I have to say, it's a great partnership for the Council on Foreign Relations and Lumina Foundation because we have complementary networks in a lot of ways, right? The great expertise that they have in terms of the foreign policy community, and you know, we're the largest funder of higher education in the United States, so we have an opportunity to get directly to the college and university, so it's a, it's a, it's a nice fit. Gentleman in the blue there had a question. Thank you. You've... You're good. Yep. Uh, you've mentioned uh, a couple things about, you've spoken to a number of employers, and about their need to have employees who, I think you said, get the world. And you've mentioned at high level some of the competencies and skills. What else can you share from the employer perspective that you've been able to glean that are sort of those really crucial skills that they're looking for in this global society? Well, it's funny. We had a meeting one day with about 40 HR heads from Fortune 100 companies. If you were a believer in the humanities and, and liberal arts education, you would have thought your ship came in. The message from every HR person was more important than content is skill set. You show, show me someone who can you know, read with discernment, speak, write clearly, uh, do you know, 
critical thing, put together a proposal, an argument, work with others. I, it's much more, we can't teach that efficiently at the, at the corporate level. We, that's, we, we, we need to expect that. But we can teach the detailed subject matter of what it is we do much more easily. And to me, we actually, after these meetings, we actually revised what it is we did. And we moved away from a content mainly approach to a content and basic skill set approach. And that was, to me, the powerful uh, takeaway from our meetings with corporate types is it was actually, it was, it was also a little bit sad because it was a statement about what high school and graduate, high school and college graduates had and didn't have. And they had just learned that they could no longer assume certain levels of basic skills and, cap and competencies. And that's what came through loud and clear. Uh, can you go behind you there first, Dylan? Thank you. Just a comment and a, a question too. Um, the uh, we've talked a little bit about why not K twelve, and you just mentioned again preparation. I did want to uh, say that Kentucky has uh, got a world language and global competence standard, and is uh, I, I think that when you have standards and you start to drive it, you have accountability possibility to really drive things that you don't in higher ed. Uh, so it is still an opportunity. And I just wondered whether to that, if you've, if you've worked with the Asia Society and their global competence yeah. um, piece, if you could speak a little bit about that. They've got this great tool, Mapping the Nation, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. that actually does have some indicators to compare states. Yeah. yeah, I think their stuff is as good as anybody's at the K through 12 level. And one of the reasons that we're focusing on the, the college university level, we see it as complementary. But I think a lot of their stuff is, is very good. And if states begin to compete with one another and best practices uh, spill over. And again, you would love to see colleges send, again, market signals through admissions policies where people who emerge from certain states, say it's a Kentucky or Colorado, because we, we have a pretty good sense that kids who graduate with, with high school diplomas from those states are more likely to have certain capabilities. I think other states will catch on pretty quickly. So I, I like what the Asia Society is doing. Uh, uh, one quick point, Mary Grant, about your your issue though is that so you've got that in Kentucky, you know they've got civics in Colorado, but but this is a real hit or miss across the country, right? We we have a real mess on our hands in terms of what the expectations are for learning. I'm not trying to make a pitch for the Common Core, but my point is that though I believe in the Common Core, um, I think that uh, we need to have a different conversation. We've got to elevate that conversation, as you said, at the K twelve level, clearly so that what we then do in college gets us to this higher level of, of literacy that Richard is really aiming at. Because I want to think about the Common Core, because I am, I am prepared to make a case for it. Uh, I also think it's important for citizenship. I do think some things in this country need to be clearly established at a, federal, at a national level. Now, there then may be flexibility about implementation locally and so forth, and you can't micromanage everything. But I do think there ought to be certain things that are common to every American citizen. In a funny sort of way, we demand it of, our, of people who are immigrating to the United States. Look at the exams we give people who want to become American citizens. Why do we hold them to a higher standard than we hold our own citizens? Something ain't adding up to me there. Okay, we've got time for just a couple more right here, please. I, I had the experience of a humanitarian humanities education at the Berkeley University of California. Um, that's a long time ago. I think things have gone an, a far different direction into specialization. But as I recall how that curriculum looked and the possibilities, 
I think there are a lot of courses that I was given that if there had been a little asterisk that would say this is your globalization uh, ticket, kind of like a Thai restaurant where you've got the little peppers on the side. These were global <laughs> For spice, <sessions>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very easy thing to accomplish. And my other question was, what about the Thunderbird School? Of what about what? Thunderbird, the Thunderbird School. School in Arizona, yeah. does it do anything to fulfill what you're talking about? By and large, schools like Thunderbird or the, there's the APSIA schools, they do great jobs, but they're not, they're not the issue because the people who go there are self-selected. So we're not aiming, for example, for students at the undergraduate level who want to major in international relations. They're there. What I'm interested in is in the 99.9% .9 of students who don't choose that as their major, uh, which is most people, needless to say. That, that's, that's who we're focusing on, rather than the specialty schools who have very small populations and self-selected uh, populations. The idea what you say of asterisks is exactly right. What we're looking at is when we're going to come up with a very modular approach to what we think are the things you need to know, and then it lets schools put the asterisks next to it. And what we want to do is increase awareness of what it would take. Because we're not saying, you've got to do it this way. seems to me that's a no-starter. What you, what you want to say is, this is where we want you to end up. Now, you can decide what's best for you, whether it's through one course, whether you take 20 of your existing courses and say, we need you to take out of these, maybe shrink it down to eight, and we need you to take four of these eight. I mean, there's ways in which you can get from me. So we want to talk about more where you end up rather than what you have to do. But your asterisk approach is exactly right. And to your point, though, I don't want to open Pandora's box here, but you're pointing to what, what is potentially a larger issue here, which is that you, know, you want to be able to signify that somebody's got that ability, that talent, that knowledge, right? And the only tool we have right now in college and universities is the transcript, which is a very anachronistic uh, mechanism for trying to report that. And so what you're seeing is uh, development of extended transcripts, different ways of documenting learning starting to emerge in higher education. The Europeans have been doing this for a while because they came together on something called the Bologna process. They developed a tool called the Diploma Supplement that a majority of European countries now use way better than the transcript. May not be fully applicable to us, but, but we, are, we are woefully behind in terms of that. We have one person right here, and then I'll see how much time I have left after that. Right there. Right, right, yes, she's right there. Hi, I was wondering, have we looked at colleges outside of the United States to see what and how they teach and how the kids learn? And if so, what are the results of that? I'll be honest, we've not looked systematically uh, at that, and it's probably something, uh, something we, we could do, uh, but we ha we've not. The, the evidence of global literacy is actually better in other parts of the world than it is yeah. in the U.S., and again, particularly in the European and Asian context, we know a lot more than we do here in the U.S., and they score way better than we do on a whole bunch of, yeah. of stuff. And so that's, that, that's, that's part of the challenge. Now, the question is, what are they doing? And uh, that's the part that I think we've got to do more, more exploration on. I think you had a question right there. I wanted to make sure we got to yours. And I just wanted to speak to two parts of it. One is... I'm from Fullbridge, and we've been working in this area for about three and a half years. And You're from where? Fullbridge, a young company that's been working with both top liberal arts schools, but also in now with Saudi with a big pilot of over 1,000 young women. And so a couple of things. The modularization I just wanted to comment on. Um, one of the things that we have discovered is that um, you can modularize the knowledge piece, but there are certain sets of soft skills and attitudes which in our experience, require a very living, intense, immersive experience and are almost impossible. And they're also very difficult sometimes to learn from professors 
who are actually held to a whole different value system. So that's just one thing we've learned. We found the, the maximum uh, video is two minutes for what that's worth. And um, I think a lot of other research has been coming in very similarly. Um, but I think one thing we've been really um, interested in in particular is uh, companies have been really excited about uh, these competency resumes where we can show not only the resumes but also the soft skills, but then the attitudes. Because this is something right. discovered right. is yeah, there's this whole third category tiny little attitude shifts, and we know this from people we've hired. Exactly. You know, whether you're cheerful or not, you know, it's very, it's very popular to be angst-ridden in college, not really so great in the workplace. But these attitudes, the kids are very receptive, but it turns out the employers, this is like a whole new category almost that, that turns out to be hugely important and not that hard to influence. So. Yeah, the, the attitudes, I, th I think, are going a slightly different place. We were thinking of attitudes in a slightly different way, which is appreciation for cultural di diversity that for Americans to succeed, whether in, in a business relationship or a diplomatic one, or just to understand, is to understand that different places aren't exactly like us. It's, it's not even enough to, to project. But there's, there's something to be said for local knowledge and differences. And that, that's one of the things that we need to in, in, encourage. You know, we make it clear just to be, so there's no misunderstanding. We, we don't use the phrase global citizen. Uh, I want, we're talking about American citizens. I'm, I'm not interested in global citizenship. Uh, but what I am interested in is Americans who can function better uh, in, in, in a world and understand a world that is truly uh, globalized. And one piece of that is really mindset. So you've got to have the knowledge set. You've got to have the skill set. But the third thing you've got to have is mindset. And you've got to understand and have a feel for and some appreciation. The best thing is through immersion. The challenge is how do you provide it when immersion isn't, isn't an option? And that's what we're, that's where another one of the things we're, quite honestly, we're struggling with, but it's, a, but it's essential. And to Richard's point about the lifelong learning, you can imagine a day when, particularly for people who are, who are adults, where you could actually crowdsource some of these questions, right? Think about the LinkedIn thing where you get those annoying emails all the time that somebody's endorsed you for certain skills. If that thing ever gets organized in a meaningful way, that could be very powerful because what it, what it could say is, yes, she's a good team player. Yes, she's a good communicator. And how do I know that? Because 150 people who work with her said that she does that. And there's interesting opportunities there. We had one more question uh, right, yes, sir, right, right there. Yeah, I, uh, I really like your idea of a nationally recognized certificate. Um, I was wondering if anyone has tried to organize some of the online stuff that is available or to originate it into something that could be construed to be a curriculum towards that particular certificate. And yeah, we're, we're trying to. I don't know if anyone else has done it, but that's essentially what we're about. I don't, I don't think it's happened yet. And again, it could be organized in such a way that it could and it'd be an outline for a college that does have uh, curriculum, and it could actually interface down into a K-12, uh, some snippets. Exactly right. And we're thinking about it in a very flexible use ways. And it could be taken by individuals on the outside. It could be taken by schools. Pieces of it can be taken. It could, and people could adapt it. So totally comfortable with what you're saying. If we're successful, that'll be what'll happen. And then at the end of it, though, you do want to have some way of accrediting or, or testing. So regardless of how institutions or individuals got to a certain place, you just want to be able to say with confidence that's what, that, that they've actually arrived. Dylan, last question. We're out of time, so, but we'll take one more. Um, I agree with this gentleman and the woman over there. 
let's say you get this off the ground, you get the certification and it, it's rolling. It would be a beautiful thing to take those people with the certification that think millenniums, that think a little different than me. I know I have two 20 kids in their 20s and use them to create an app for your program because what I've learned is that's the, that's the future of how they learn. And because you want this to be a, kind of a continuum and keep reaching them as they continue whatever workplace or global place they are, they think differently. They think in sound bites. They think, uh, you know, and you can incorporate their vision with yours. And I, I think it would be a nice way to give them almost like a job, if you will, and be connected to you. Well said. As long as it's almost. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. Global literacy, you heard it here first. Thank you. Okay. More to come. Thank you.